Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am joined by Andy Crouch, and this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a long time, and uh, you know, really grateful that Andy uh, is on the podcast today. Uh, because I've been wanting to have him on uh, for a while, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, his brand new book called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And we'll get into a little bit more about that here in just a little bit. However, if this does happen to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to let you know that there's really three things that drive a lot of what we do here. And the first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have different difficult conversations because you can't have uh, conversations with just anybody, it seems like. And as ideal as that would be, we know that that's not always how things play out. That there are some topics that maybe you just don't feel like you could talk with the other person because, you know, maybe maybe you feel like they're, um, you know, not engaging you or, or really wanting to listen to you. Maybe they're more about wanting to uh, make a point and make their points and kind of how they view things rather than engaging in thoughtful dialogue or even listening. And so that's the first one. We want to create a safe place to have uh, difficult conversations. And the second one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And that in some cases, sometimes what we learn from people is what not to do. We learn from their failures. And in other cases, we can learn from their examples as well. And the last one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything because everything has something to teach us. We can take something from everything that we can learn, um, you know, a lesson or learn things about life from all manner of subjects. And today, one of those things that we're going to be learning about is how uh, technology and how our, um, you know, as as Andy, you know, talks about is kind of how our, our need for more has affected us, you know, over the past few hundred years and how um, and how that has led us to a place to where we are relationship deficient. And so uh, I absolutely really enjoyed this book, really enjoyed this conversation as well. And yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Andy and then we can jump into the conversation. So Andy Crouch is a partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. His writing explores faith, culture, and the image of God in the domains of technology, power, leadership, and the arts. He is the author of five books, including The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World, and he serves on the governing board for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He also serves as an advisor to the Repentance Project, the Pelican Project, and Revoice. For more than 10 years, he was an editor and producer at Christianity Today, including serving as executive editor from 2012 to 2016. And there's many other things that I could say about him, but he's just somebody that I've really appreciated learning from, you know, for the past several years and have read uh, several of his books. And I'm sure that you have people like that too, that you've been following along for, uh, you know, maybe for a long time or maybe a short time that you're really enjoying 
learning from. And if you have someone like that, or if you have something that you would really love us to cover on the podcast, I would love to hear from you and, and, you know, let me know what that is. And maybe we can work on either covering that subject or potentially getting that person on the podcast. And the best way to reach out to me is learners corner podcast at gmail.com. And now without any further wait, here is my conversation with Andy Crouch. Andy, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you so much, Caleb. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, one of the things uh, that I would just love to hear from you, because uh, I know that you spend a lot of time learning from a lot of different people and things and subjects, is I would just love to hear from you is what has captured your attention or imagination or curiosity right now? Oh, man. Uh, well, for a few years, I've been on a kind of ancient history. I mean, I, I studied ancient history in college, uh, but I've re- revived my interest in a part that I studied less, which is what's called late antiquity, which is what happened to the Roman empire in like the second or third centuries onward. So I've been reading Kyle Harper, who is this incredible um, historian uh, at university of Oklahoma. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> he wrote a book on the role that plagues played in the decline of the Roman empire, the fall of the Roman empire and how, how critical plagues were. And he wrote this book in like 2017. So he was very, uh, for a historian, strangely prophetic. And now I'm reading his book from shame to sin, which is about sexual ethics in the Roman empire up to and through the Christian era. Mm. So Kyle Harper would be one. Uh, then there's an English writer, contemporary writer named Paul Kingsnorth, who I'm just enjoying reading his occasional writings. He's a, he's an environmentalist, came to Christian faith about two years ago, and it's been very interesting to follow his journey as a kind of deep environmentalist writing about our times from a newly Christian perspective, you might say. What are some of the things that you're taking away from, you know, from everything that you had mentioned or what's standing out to you or really resonating with you right now? I mean, from both of these gentlemen, and other things, I think one thing that stands out to me is how our time is not that different from other times in in the long history of humanity, you know, Uh, plague, famine, war, are all these recurring realities that shape civilizations. And then and then that, you know, as a Christian, that that God's people, uh, uh, if we dare call ourselves that, uh, have the opportunity to respond to redemptively or not. And it's just, it's striking how, how many things recur in history. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe what I'm dwelling on recently. Yeah. That's something that I've been thinking about too recently of just Mm. diving into history and just what you were mentioning. You see all of these patterns like come up up again and again and again. Um, And I would just love to hear your thoughts on uh, maybe maybe why do you think that there's a tendency to think today is new <laughs> this you know? time is different yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the four four least true words in the human language yeah <laughs> well i mean every generation i i talk about this in the new book a little bit i mean every baby arrives and has to do the human story over again you know we all have to figure it out uh, at an individual level 
as much as that is conditioned by the world we are born into and our parents and our culture and so forth, there's also this just endless human quest that seems to use a computer metaphor, almost hardwired into our brains and bodies, like that we are, we're built for certain, for a certain kind of quest. And every human being has to start that quest from day one. And I suppose it's also true that every generation has to start that quest from day one in certain, in certain ways. And so uh, we feel like this time is different because even though we can read about it, even though we can see connections to the past, it is our time to figure it out. And, and it's also, there are no like hard, you know, there are laws of science or physics, let's say, but there are no laws of history, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, even epidemiology, right. Is pretty simple as things go. Like we know, we, we know a lot about how viruses work, but, but we look at the course of a given virus like SARS-CoV-2 and what we could say in March, 2020 versus what we can say today versus what a hundred years from now, when people look back on it, they'll be able to trace patterns that we couldn't see. But when you're in the midst of it, there's so much you do not know. Um, and the most expert people don't know, let alone ordinary people. And that's like a super simple thing compared to, let's say a, a huge nation decides to invade a nation to its West and puts like 30 battalions on the line. And, you know, it's February 22 and you're like, well, we think we're, we know how that's going to go. And it turns out you don't know. Yeah. So history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. So it, it both is, is new and isn't. So I think that's why it does genuinely feel every single time, like, oh my gosh, we don't know what's happening. What's it going to be? It's not the same. And it isn't the same. And yet when we look back, we'll realize there's a lot of, a lot of similar patterns here. Yeah. What's, what's helped you manage? I don't know if the right word is tension or just that idea of like, we can, we can learn from history, but yet, as you were saying, it is not, uh, it is not a, like, we can't predict the future. I think the, yeah, you cannot predict. I, uh, I wrote a piece in the midst of COVID actually, um, about the difference between making a prediction and making a promise. Um, so predictions are very, very difficult. <laughs> like no one should pretend to be able to make them about anything very important in complex systems. Um, what you can do in an uncertain world is make a promise and promises actually do so, so the interesting thing is predictions don't do anything to change the future generally. Promises actually do change the future if they are kept. Uh, mm. Or, well, they change the future whether they're kept or not, because the fact that a promise has been broken becomes a very significant thing in, in human relationships. So you, we can't predict the future. We certainly can't control it, but we can influence it by the promises we make. And I think the way history helps is it does take us out of our narrow selves um, and help us begin to discern what the right kinds of promises are to make. In other words, what should I commit myself to knowing how uncertain the world is, knowing how unstable, even the most stable things are. Um, what should I build my life on? What should I commit my energy to? And I think actually in that way, like history cannot help me figure out what's coming next, but it can help me have a kind of humble, realistic, but maybe also hopeful set of reasons for making the promises I make. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, can you tease out just that idea of what you were saying, like the right promises? Uh, 
to make as opposed to predictions or even making sure that we aren't promising things that we we have no control over there that we have no agency over yeah well i mean it, it comes down to what do i think actually matters and lasts so the more i study history and embed my or even you know studying history is just a way of like uh crossing cultures so it's it's also true just traveling whether literally or or imaginatively across cultures whether, whether by learning another language or learn, watching the watch you know uh i don't know 50 hours of telenovelas and and you'll see the world differently like you'll see the world as a central american uh you know uh television watcher sees the world rather than the way that you have been accustomed to see the world if you're a white anglo-american and I mean, that kind of travel is just as valuable as traveling back in time. And what both of these do is start to give us a sense of there are some things that are just perennially important, you know, so for example, um, I, I, I do think uh, the promises men and women make to each other <laughs> in the heat of attraction, uh, and then the promises that they make or don't make to the children that they beget in the heat of attraction and different cultures handle all this super differently. This is kind of part of the point of Cal Harper's shame to sin. Like Rome thought about these relations in totally different ways from the way we do today. Um, but there are some perennial questions. Are, are you going to stick with me? Are you for me? Uh, you know, will my father abandon me? Um, I don't know. I, I want to make I mean, I, I want to build my life around the really big things. Um, and I would also say you realize that a lot of stuff changes really fast. A lot of fashions change really fast, including intellectual fashions. Um, I've, I work sometimes, I have periods in my life where I spend a lot of time with people who are starting new churches. And I always want to ask them, are you starting a church for your generation, for your children's generation, or for your grandchildren's generation? Mm -hmm. And if you're starting a church for your grandchildren's generation, then the kind of music you do does not matter because they are not going to like, or maybe it does matter, but not in the way you think, because it's not going to be relevant to them, right? And so many people like want their music or their art or their design of their graphics to be relevant. It's like, well, your grandchildren are going to not care, but they will care about some other things. So figure out what those things are and like most put most of your energy into that rather than culturally relevant things. Yeah, it really just makes me think of, I mean, you're just emphasizing the the perspective of taking the long term and stuff, exactly. like thinking generations from now instead of, you know, exactly in, instead of two months from now, even. Exactly. <laughs> and and interestingly, like, in some ways, I there's more I can be sure of that will be true for my like great, great, great grandchildren about what it's like to be human than I can be sure of what two weeks from now is going mm -hmm. to be like, like in terms of prediction, because if I'm if I'm trying to imagine say i don't know 200 years from now well there's lots of things i can't predict I, I really have to go back to the question what is perennially true for human beings and there actually is a set of answers to that that will still be true i think mm -hmm. because we look 200 years ago we see oh yeah what they cared about then in certain ways we still do now in spite of how much the world has changed yeah and even even just as we were talking this idea that you were talking about a promise uh it makes me think of your book as well the, yeah, the life I, I would hope so yeah, yeah it makes me think of that because i i think for me and and how it is uh hit me recently is like one of one of the things that i've been working on is like dialing down with what you were saying what matters most to me in life mm. and who matters most to me yes. in life and i think about how that plays out of what you were talking about in the book you know the life we're looking for in terms of uh technology and and uh and relationally 
Yes. As well, but that doesn't seem to be um, something that is thought about a, ho- mm. a whole ton. And like I even think of, and I would love your thoughts on this. Um, I think it's really challenging in in the Christian community too, especially like I find like I am on a church staff. Mm. as well um and i think part of the challenging thing is we're trying to love everybody like quote unquote equally Mm. as well um and yeah i would just love your thoughts just on kind (laughs) of i mean that's a whole lot (laughs) right there but would just love your love some of your thoughts or insight on that yeah so i mean well one just to stick with you know kind of what does the perspective of history goes i actually think it does connect to one of the key through lines of the book, which is what's happened in the technological story and why is it not turning out very well for us <laughs> in certain ways? I mean, like we all recognize we're more powerful, safer, uh, probably many other things than most human beings have ever been. And yet we're not, we don't seem that happy given how well the technology seems to work. So mm-hmm. one way to think about it is there's this very long human story of making tools um, that is making things that help us extend ourselves in the world. And I actually think we need to get back to that story. We got diverted for a, roughly a hundred years by the dream of things that would operate on their own. And that, that the more that things would operate on their own, and by the way, this dream itself goes way back. Aristotle thought about it. He was like, hey, wow. Or um, actually maybe, sorry, it, it, I think it's Socrates in one of the Platonic dialogues, though I think Aristotle picks up on this as well. Um, you know, what if we could have uh, slaves play? What if we had not a human slave, but like a, a, a mechanical slave that would play music for us, it would uh, strum the harp for us? That's the specific thing he was thinking about. And well, we do now have that, but it turns out I think that's actually not that good for human beings. I think human beings are made to make music primarily and to listen to music other people are making live. But whether it's actually that good for us to immerse ourselves in recorded music, at least if we never make music ourselves, I don't think I don't think so. So part of what I want us to do is actually go back to the story up until 100 years ago, where we didn't have things that operated on their own. But where just like right now, we you know, you're not a a podcast interviewer robot. <laughs> I'm not a podcast <laughs> guest robot. We're using a ton of technology here to record this and to distribute it. But you and I are, are aiming to have a real human conversation. And I actually think part of why podcasts have become so popular is it's like the last place you can hear two people actually paying attention to one another at, at length, right? Where else yeah. does this happen? Because if we were actually, the irony is if we were hanging out together, like in a coffee shop or something, probably at about the 10 minute mark, one of us would pull out our phone just to like check you would you know with buzz or we'd get distracted or whatever like we would actually pay less attention to each other in person than we do when we're oh yeah it's a podcast interview for like up to an hour i'm gonna pay full attention to what caleb's asking and how he's responding and you're gonna be you know uh, doing the same anyway that's what we need technology to be to go back in the book i talk about is technology as instruments not as devices devices things that just displace us take over for us and therefore can replace us we actually need instruments which are can be super high tech but which we fully use so that's only like one eighth of what you asked about your question <laughs> but but that like we need to rejoin the health the story when tools were actually good for people because for the last hundred years i think tools the devices we've created mostly have not been good for people yeah and can you tease out what you were mentioning you know and you talk about this in the book the difference between an instrument and a device and maybe mm-hmm. some examples of what using technology like an instrument can look like yeah so uh, very briefly, I'd say that the device um, 
the, the progress in devices is measured by how little human beings have to do for, to get the good thing we want. So, you know, first when we're, uh, when we're hot, we fan ourselves just with our hand. We use our bodies to like, you know, move some air. Um, then we have, then we have the tool, which is like the hand fan that you see in Asian cultures or you see in the black church, there's these fans that every black church used to have in its pews. That's like a very rudimentary tool, but then you get a fan you can plug into the wall. Then you get an HVAC system. And by the time you get to the HVAC system, like nobody ever needs to think about it. It's just, the air is always the right temperature and we never think about it. So that's like the logic of devices is less and less human involvement. But that also means less and less human engagement, less and less human skill involved in participating in whatever good that is. Instruments are a totally different thing. They're a kind of technology that can be. I'm thinking about medical instruments, scientific instruments, musical instruments that can have lots and lots of human ingenuity and high tech, but they always fully involve a human being. And I might add, they involve, ideally, they involve us in all the dimensions of being human, which in the book I talk about is heart, soul, mind, and mm -hmm. strength. So a really great instrument, and I think musical instruments are maybe the ultimate example, doesn't just help you do things with your strength. It actually helps you express your mind. And it also has emotional resonance. And it also touches your soul, your kind of createdness for relationship with others and, and maybe even with God. Um, so we can ask our technology to do all those things um, if we want to. So uh, I think about a couple of apps that have been developed by people in the Praxis community. Uh, there's this app called uh, Praxis is the organization I work for. We work with entrepreneurs who are Christian who are trying to do redemptive things in the world. There's this app called Lasting, um, which is specifically for married couples, um, or at least long-term partnered couples, I guess probably they would say. And, uh, and the Lasting's kind of goal is to be like the fitness trainer for a marriage. <laughs> so you know how you have fitness apps, right? Which are mm -hmm. actually also instruments in a way, because the app doesn't do the exercise for you. It just prompts you on how to like take it further, take it deeper. Well, that's fine for physical fitness, but, but the kind of genius behind lasting was what if we had that kind of coaching for the daily work of building, deepening, maintaining these relationships that we hope will last, which turns out to be about the body's strength, about the mind, how, how you think about things together, about the encounter of the soul, right? And it inevitably involves emotion. And my, when my wife and I did some of these exercises from the lasting app, you know, you, it quickly gets emotional um, and that's a good thing because that's just part of being human. And it's definitely part of being in any lasting relationship. Um, so here's an app, like it's on the same screen as Tinder, <laughs> right? I mean, the same exact device can present me with this thing where I, I just swipe between these sort of imaginary options. Probably they're going to be pretty short term. Probably they're not going to, it's not going to invite me to go very deep. If I'm going to go deep off of Tinder, it'll be like, it's like hacking it. It's misusing it. It's not optimized for a deep relationship. It's uh, other things. Um, or I can turn to this other app called Lasting and be invited into this really intense process with another human being. So it just depends on which I want the technology to serve me. Like, do I want it to serve me disengagement and, and a kind of shallow or at best a shallow engagement? Or do I, do I have to serve up heart, soul, mind, strength, like challenge? Yeah. And we could be like, we could be saying every day, all day, 
I'm not even going to look at a screen unless it's going to serve me a heart, soul, mind, strength challenge. But the reality is a lot of the time we'd rather it be a device, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Can you talk more about, you know, engaging our heart, soul, mind and, and body as well? Mm-hmm. Just because like, as, as I was, you know, getting things ready for our conversation, I was just thinking for myself of like, yep, that's probably like a good thing to add to like my weekly review list of like, okay, how am oh, I done yeah. with that each week? Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I've done this exercise with some folks and I do it myself sometimes. Like think about the last week, when were you in a setting that developed in particular developed heart, soul, mind strength. And the reason I say developed is that I'm obviously taking this from Jesus who said the greatest commandment was love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So that word all to me implies, and I think it's right to hear in that, like this invitation to development. It's, it's not just whatever heart I have today. (laughs) It's no, I've got a capacity for emotional connection with other people in the world that needs to be developed. And, and then on the other hand, it, it can shrink away, like I can become apathetic, you know, that would be kind of uncaring, that would be to become heartless, or at least less heartful. Um, I have a mind which has a capacity to, to cognitively, intellectually, let's say, engage the world. And that can be developed or it can diminish. It can diminish. My mind can just kind of atrophy for lack of really, really pushing and thinking. So, uh, so what it's interesting to think over about a week's time. How often are we in settings where you, where one or more of those things is developed? Because my understanding of what it is to be a person, I, I think, you know, um, in a way, this, this question of the greatest commandment was kind of an ancient or an, a Jewish way, an ancient Jewish way of asking the question, what is human flourishing? I, you know, that's a modern way. It's also an Aristotelian way of putting it, what is human flourishing? But, but the Jewish way to ask, ask the question is, what, uh, what is the greatest commandment? What, what would God most want us to do? <laughs> uh, what would be best for us? Because it's what God most intently commands. And uh, the, I think that we are in a world that does not help us actually obey that commandment and develop those things. Um, And so, you know, I think about this conversation, ideally by the end, I'm guessing I'll check off three of the four. (laughs) So in other (laughs) words, you're going to ask me some questions I don't know the answer to, which you've already done, which is awesome. That makes for great conversation. So that develops my mind. Hopefully we're going to feel like there was emotion in it and a range of emotion, right? There were moments of humor and laughter, moments of, you know, just touching on what's hard about being human, let's say. And then hopefully I'll feel like there was some something, you know, within the limits of what we can do here of a soul connection in a way. Now, the problem is we're doing it on, a, on screens, which means we're sitting still partly to get good audio. But the truth is, it would be, it would be a richer conversation if there was some way to record a podcast while we were walking, right? Mm. Because so much philosophy and history has been done while walking. So much of Jesus' life was spent while walking. And there's something that happens to a conversation when you're actually moving. And if, if we were, had a way to do that and also to capture it, it would be more developmental. So this is like the challenge for all of us. Is, and, and one way to think about it is any given thing I'm doing, could I add a dimension? So if I need to think about a problem, I know I need to think about it. Could I go for a walk and think about it? That adds the body dimension. Or could I actually let my emotions figure out what's the emotional thing at stake in a, in an intellectual problem. That would be adding the heart. 
like the more we can add heart to things that involve mind, the more we can add strength to things that seem to just be about the mind. I don't know. I think that starts to get us a, a fuller human life. No, it, it even makes me think of how much our tendency is not towards that flourishing, but the dis- diminishment. Like I'm even just thinking about, yes, like, <laughs> about like my my own life ago. Okay, so you know, vacation. We want we want to stay at home ah, and and relax, yes. not en- and even like not engage our mind. And so, in some cases, we might hand over, um, or we just we just might not choose to think <laughs> in in certain situations, totally, or, or numbing or anything like that. So right. And it's because I think, I think we were designed for a rhythm of work and rest. We do need rest. And that's what you're kind of looking for when you go, when you have that vacation. Um, But I actually, I honestly think the thing we were designed for is sleep. Like if you need rest, the best thing to do is sleep. It's like this deep restoration. And part of our problem actually, it's partly technology because we now have lights we can keep on way into the night. Most of us have forgotten if we ever knew what it's like to have a good night's sleep. Like <laughs> it's just so rare. Well, especially once you hit adulthood, people talk about sleeping like a baby. I will say, I think actually sleeping like a teenager is the thing to aspire to the, as I've seen teenagers sleep. Like they, you just, there is this season of life where you are out, but even teens these days are having trouble sleeping um, because they have their phones with them and the phone is always serving up their friends and their friends' problems and their friends' likes and other things for their friends. And so we're made for rest for sure. But what we end up, rather than this kind of cycle of work and rest, we end up with this distorted cycle of toil and leisure. So toil is actually sort of fruitless work often that doesn't involve all, all four of those dimensions. And it leaves you feeling both very restless and very spent. And so then you turn to what you were describing, which is leisure, like, oh, I just want a break. Like yeah. I need to turn on Netflix or whatever. But that actually turns out not to be that restful. And then you have trouble sleeping that night. <laughs> it's like this cycle. Um, so yeah, I think I think we're made for way more engagement than we imagine. And we're, we find it rewarding as long as we are living with a good a good rhythm of work and rest. Um, but otherwise we end up just sort of desperately grasping at leisure rather than uh, when we're awake, being fully engaged in the world. Mm-hmm. And and that makes me think of like another big idea that you talk about, which again, was one of my major takeaways from the book. You talk about the God of mammon as well. Uh, huh. And and the uh, <laughs> like the demonic force that it is and literally like thinking yes. it in terms of that, of realizing like there is like kind of an, an an active an activeness towards her it is it is the yes um it is it is the normal for that there's, to be yeah go ahead there's a will at work in the world actively yeah. actively offering this alternative yes yes yeah. so i and jesus said this was the one thing where he said you cannot serve god and this other thing and I think it is it is uh meant to be understood as a quasi personal I won't say properly personal because what in fact demons hate is the personal Mm -hmm. but certainly will it's a will in the world that is driving the development of technology that at individual all the way up to massive global scales is in a if you i the way i sort of think about it is as it's whispering all the time (laughs) wouldn't you like wouldn't you like to have life a little easier wouldn't you like to be less troubled wouldn't you like, you know, and you can fill in the many things man promises. My friend John Tyson sums it up as abundance without dependence. And so wouldn't you like to have everything you want, but without needing anyone, 
without limits, without depending on God. And I absolutely believe we haven't reckoned with technology until we've realized there is actually a force, a willful force driving its development that is not seeking our good to say the very least. Yeah. And even just while you were talking, it just made me think of that, like what we were talking about earlier, that is not a new temptation. Like to me, what, yes. what, what came to mind That's good. Uh, just while we were talking is just the idea of um, it's almost like the temptation to be God. And you could push back yes, on that, but that's yes, what it makes yes, me think yes. of because of what Completely. you were saying. It's like, I'm a, like, there are no limits. You right. could be as efficient as possible. You could do whatever you want to do, all of that stuff. And, and it absolutely goes all the way back to, you know, the garden as narrated in, in scripture. Uh, so in that way, there's nothing new about this. The, 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 the two things I would say though, um, uh, just to fill it out. One yeah. is, I do think mammon, I think a thousand years ago, if you asked which demon is winning in the world, I mean, I think there would have been a lot of different answers because, you know, people have been like, well, war and strife is really powerful. And, you know, lust always is trying to show up and score some points. And they'd be like, yeah, greed and mammon also. I feel like mammon has taken a kind of dominant position in the in the modern world. Uh, in a, because even if you just think about uh, our our ancestors of 500 to a thousand years ago how often did they even have money to handle how, how often could they you know have uh, access money most people not at all and today everybody has to just to participate so i think mammon has has pulled ahead in some ways of the other angles of corruption um in the human story not that those have gone away but it's just uniquely powerful the other thing that I think is super interesting what you're saying is absolutely it's this quest to be like God, but it is not actually the quest to be what the true God is like. Mm. It's a quest to be what we imagine God is like. So we imagine, oh, you know, if you didn't have any limits, that would be like God. Well, if you're Christian, you believe God became flesh, took on all kinds of limits, and yet was truly God. So it turns out divinity is not incompatible with limits. And they were like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to be independent? And then we learn from, again, I don't know that we'd ever learn this on our own, but the Christian revelation teaches us that actually God has always been interdependent. It's been father, son, and spirit the whole time. It's been this relational thing. It's not a solitary thing. So all these quests to be like God, um, first of all, it's not going to happen. You're, you're going to fail, but you're certainly going to fail if the God that you're trying to be like is not even the real God. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it's based on complete misconception of what divinity is, a, a misconception that is only really reframed, interrupted, uh, um, and retold in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's the moment when we realize we had this totally wrong, what it was like to be like God. Where where do you see like the the greatest expressions of man and like in in our culture or even just in in people's lives? In essence, um, I, I guess I see it whenever, well, I see it in two ways. One is the, the way money is becoming less and less connected to the material world. So wealth has gone from being primarily about land um, that was owned by families over time and worked for agricultural purposes, then became gold uh, and other precious metals, then became um fiat currency, which is basically the invention of a state, then became computerized ledger entries, which is what it is today. And the next 
uh, step is going to be in um, crypto, what we call cryptocurrencies. The point is not really that they're secret. The secret mm-hmm. is just to help uh, create a, an indelible, reliable ledger. So, and and so every step in this is dematerialization. So mammon, all the demonic, there's two things that the demonic world hates. One is persons, because <laughs> persons are built for love and the demonic world hates that. And then the other is the material world because demons have no physical reality and they weren't given one. And in in the history of Christian reflection on this, and I don't mean to go beyond what we can know, but it seems there's this sort of speculation that they're jealous uh, in a way that God's image bearers actually are material. So the demonic hates the personal and the demonic hates the material. So, so there's the immateriality of money uh, that is just accelerating where, you know, if you, if someone asked me, you know, how much are you worth? What we mean by that is what are the ledger entries, you know, that are just in computers? It doesn't refer to anything I can touch, anything I can turn into, uh, you know, fruitfulness on its own. It's just all ledger entries. And then the other way that I think Mammon is is, um, dominating is the the relentless introduction of payment into relationships that used to be non-economic. So here's a really interesting thing I've noticed. Have you noticed the use of this word uh, gifting as a verb? Yeah. (laughs) I was gifted uh, such and such. Now, we used to have another verb, I seem to remember. It was giving, right? (laughs) So um, my parents gave me, I don't know, you know, a a stuffed animal for my fifth birthday. now, I think the word give, so why, why did we have to invent a new word? It's kind of like when we had this good word tool, why did we invent this word technology? I think it's because something changed. And I think what changed is when something is gifted to someone else, no relational debt goes along with it. There's this sort of really interesting area of anthropology, which is the study of how gifts work in traditional cultures. When I give you something, I, ne- I never give it entirely away. There's a sense of obligation and relationship that's created by the gift, right? Um, and anthropologists have studied all the different ways this can work and it gets very interesting and complicated depending on the society. Um, I think when we say something was gifted, the one thing that implies is I have no obligation back, um, so, which is why you can re-gift. <laughs> right? Regifting is taking this thing that's, it's just mine. It doesn't tie me to another person anyway. So I can just regift it. I can like send it on at, with no loss. And so many of our relationships are ending up in this quasi financial. It's also why people are more and more comfortable just giving gift cards for Christmas. Like, well, I don't know what Andy will really like. I'll just give him a, a gift card, which is basically, basically just a form of money for yeah. a particular store. And of course, really, if I, if I really want to be an inconvenience in the least, I won't give him like a Chick-fil-A gift card or a Target gift card, because then he'd have to go to those stores. I'm just going to give him like an Amex gift card, just pure money, right? But, but what that does is it basically forfeits, it to, gives up on the idea that I could ever figure out, you know, if I was trying to give Caleb a gift, it just gives up on knowing Caleb well enough to give him something that would honor him and serve him well. And it just is, uh, just take some money. And I think that's a sign that mammon is like worming its way deeper and deeper into even our family relationships and gifts at Christmas and birthdays and so forth. Uh, I'd love for your thoughts on how does social media play out into this specifically as it ties into mammon, because, and, and again, you can, 
you can uh, disagree mm-hmm. with this, but I just had the thought of, as you were talking about currency and, uh, yep. and what it pays, I thought, huh, I wonder how that applies to followers. As- <laughs> <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. It, so I do think it connects, um, you know, so I think of money, the, the thing that makes money powerful is it, it's what I call um, uh, uh, fungible, countable, storable power. And so to unpack that, fungible means it can be exchanged for other things. Countable means you can know how much you have and storable means you can use it for later. So we like the idea of a kind of power that we can count it, we can translate it into other things and we can store it for later. I think social media starts to give us some of those things. Your follower count is a kind, certainly countable. In some ways it's this stored up signal of your relational capital with other people. Same thing with the counts of the likes on a given post or whatever. Now it's not totally fungible in the sense that you can't easily translate it into something else per se, but, but it is, it's this numerical legible accounting of your worth (laughs) in that way. I think Mammon loves it. Mammon is so delighted that you would know how many followers you have because this is a new thing in human, in human history, really. And, and by the way, it's a thing associated with the idolatry of rulers in the Bible. It, it's the idea of taking a census, right? When the king tends, takes a census, the purpose is to figure out how much power he has, how, how, man, how much manpower specifically can he mobilize in war? That's usually the point. And, and it's, all, it's always presented in the Bible as an act of idolatry. Uh, if you really trusted God and you're the king of Israel, you should not have to worry how, how many men you have, because that's not what, what wins Yahweh's battles anyway. Um, so when the king takes a census, it's a sign of distrust. And it's the same when we take a census of our influence. Um, but here's the really crazy thing. I'm sure you know this whole web three idea, which is uh, the idea is web 1.0 was, you know, sort of um, HTML and the web proper web two was these platforms like Facebook and Twitter and so forth. Web three is applying the cryptocurrency layer to create um, settings that uh, one of the big pitches for web three is right now, when you post something on Instagram, all you get back is little hearts, little likes. Well, what if you could get money back? What if you could get actual, and this, and I know fungible gets used in this world in a different way, but what if you could get um, essentially money, you could you could cash it out and eventually have US dollars or have whatever, uh, uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. And if you think about it, what they are saying is, wouldn't it be great to be paid for your influence on social media? Mm-hmm. And Web3 will be sold on the theory that you will be happier, healthier, a better creator, if you are paid for every micro for every micro time you influence somebody else, you'll get the money. That's mammon. That's mammon. It's not that there's not a place for people to get paid for doing good work for others, you know, but to insert that into all your relationships, including like with your aunt, like when your aunt likes something on Instagram, like you get five cents. <laughs> Very dangerous. Yeah, because it just makes me think of then then the pressure to become more efficient happens oh, yes yes and, and then after that it goes like to me it just comes back to okay so if i'm trying to be more efficient so i can get paid more then i start wow. thinking about people in terms of return like people and things based on wow. return on investment Ex- that's so right exactly and and the non-economic realm is the only place where inefficiency can be in a way sustained or sustainable mm-hmm. 
once we're in an economic transaction, we get, we have to make the most of it because time is money, money is in a hurry. And, and yes, do I want to be in an efficient relationship with my aunt or my nephew or my grandmother or my, you know, uh, or my friend? And what, what the monetization of social media is going to do, and I assume it will succeed in some sense, like I assume it'll get built and delivered in the next 10 years or so, is it will start making you, it already does. I mean, to some extent, people already calculate, like how many likes will I get for this? They subconsciously calculate, but it will give you an actual pecuniary financial incentive to make everything in your life more efficient. Wow, I'd not quite put it together that way. That's pretty, that's pretty good and important. And something for us to just say, no, thank you. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play that game. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I would love to hear from you of what are some of the rhythms that you have started, you know, implementing in your life or that even you've just seen great examples of people who have implemented rhythms into their life to kind of combat mammon. Mm, yeah. Well, so I think two big areas are essentially money and time. Those two are kind of interlocked in some ways. I think the busyness of our world is very mammon driven. So on the money front, um, uh, I mean, two really simple things are transparency and generosity. So th there's an amazing amount of secrecy about money in our modern world, especially among the more affluent, the more... Um, I've, I've found that people who are kind of just getting by don't have a lot to hide about money. They'll talk about how much their hourly salary is and so forth, but you get into people who are better compensated by in mammon's terms. And they just like, they would rather tell you their sex life than their banking life. Like, honestly, they, they'll be more forthcoming about human, about sexuality than anything about money. So I, I don't do this in mediated form. That is when on a podcast like this, I'm not going to say what, what, what I, my family makes in income mm -hmm. or what we steward in terms of wealth. But if we were together in person without hesitation, I tell people that all the time. And, and for many people, it's literally the first time someone they're not related to, or even someone they're related to has just told them like, here's how much we make, here's how much we are stewarding. Right. Yeah. So just some transparency, I think for many, many people is a really healthy step. It, it's amazing how it disarms the whisper because the stuff whispers when it's secret, but once it's out in the open in a relationship, then that whisper fades and, and then better, you have better conversations. Then generosity is just, I mean, the basic idea of tithing on your income, at least 10%. And then what, what has been really helpful to me, because we've ended up with significant amounts to to steward. And, and I'm not talking about billions, I'm, but I am talking like net, you know, millions uh, that have come, that have been entrusted in different ways to me and my family. Uh, uh, tithing on our net worth. So tithing on our assets, that is not tithing just on the money that's coming in, but tithing on what you've stored up and saying, we're going to give away like 10, 20, 30% of that. And we haven't stored up so much that we just are totally set. Like we don't, it doesn't feel that way to us at all. Yeah. But, most people, it doesn't feel that way. And so it's a huge risk to say, no, over the next few years, we're going to liquidate like 20, 20, we just did this with 25% it ended up being, um, and give it away to other people who need it more than we do. And man, that breaks the power of the idolatry of money. On the time front, um, I think uh, Sabbath is just so powerful. I, I Sabbath to me 
is the circuit breaker for idolatry. If you have it in your life, it, it is really hard for the idols to get their grips totally around you. And I think of it in terms of uh, an hour a day, uh, especially with technology stuff. Like we have an hour a day where we turn off anything with an off switch, including the electric lights in our house, dinner time, turn off the electric lights, light candles, and amazing things happen in that hour. The phones are all plugged in, all the glowing rectangles are blank. You know, they're turned to the wall so they don't light up. Um, and, and in that hour, you have a kind of conversation and a sense of your own life and your life with God, life with other people. It's amazing. Then one day a week, Sunday for our home, and then one week a year, we basically turn it all off. Um, the, the one other thing I'll mention just in terms of rhythms that has been just absurdly helpful for me is a few years ago, I decided I would not look at my screens until I had been out of doors. So mm -hmm. every morning I wake up, I make some tea, because uh, I'm not really willing to get rid of that idol. I need my tea in the morning, <laughs> but I make my tea. And rather than what I used to do is like, while the tea was still steeping, I would pick up uh, my phone and see what was on it. I was like, this, this cannot be good for my soul. And yes, indeed, it turns out it is so much better if I walk out, out of doors, some days it's raining, some days it's really cold. I don't necessarily stay out there a long time, but I, I start the day in creation as a creature. And it's just been ridiculously transformative for my life with God and my life with the devices. They just have less power um, when I start the day without them. Hey, one question that I wanted to ask is, do uh, and if the answer is uh, yes, you can say, or they answer, whatever. Uh, yeah. Um, do you have a hard stop at two? And if so, that's okay. Um, uh, no, it just not... helps me. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just double check. No, no, not hard stop. Okay. No. Yeah. Cool. No, I'm just I'm sorting yeah, through yeah. the questions in my head, and I want to make sure I get to the most important ones. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, towards towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, three uh, movements, and we talked about mm -hmm. one of one of them from instrument yeah. to devices. Yeah. Um, and they were really powerful. And I would just love for you to kind of tease tease out kind of what they can look like in terms of moving from uh, from a household to an individual life, yeah. and then from the charmed life to the blessed yeah. to the blessed as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we'll do the uh, yeah the order in the book uh, that we've talked about one, which is we have way too many devices. We need lots more instruments. So then, yeah. then the second move is this move from from the individual to the household, from the from the life from the isolated life that we so easily have. Not least because all these devices are designed; they're really not very well designed to be used together. They're all designed to sort of take us into our own world. Um, but I actually don't think family is enough. So when I, when I talk about the household, I'm not just thinking about the way the census defines it, like, you know, a, a family under one roof. I'm really thinking about the way the ancient world thought of it. And many cultures today, people lived and in many places still live with, with people beyond their immediate family. Um, whether that's intergenerational, so grandparents, grandchildren, great-grandparents, perhaps, um, or extended family, which could be cousins, um, but also just um, people who are closely connected to you over time and who you share the intimacy of life that comes with everybody having a key to the front door. I, the way I think about this is who has a key to your home? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, for many, many Americans, the answer would be just me and, and my, my immediate family. And, and of course, half of Americans don't uh, necessarily have a spouse or whatever. And 
Uh, and so they're living often on their own. And for, for both those people who live on their own, all the way to people who have many kids at home, I think the really important question is who else has a key? <laughs> who mm -hmm. else can be close enough, proximate enough to your life that they see you in ways you can't control and they see you in your more vulnerable moments than you would ever show in public and, and also see who you can become and the way that those closest to you can see. And this is household life. And I, I think because Mammon hates relationships, Mammon's world has been optimized to splinter us ever more and more from one another. Um, so that, you know, kids move not just into their own home in the way Genesis 1 call, talks about, you know, therefore a man shall leave his, his parents and cleave to his wife. And they, you know, there, there is this inevitable generational reforming of, of homes that I think is proper. But it doesn't say, uh, because he got a really good job off, job offering, the man shall cleave to his wife, move 3,000 miles away, make sure to call every Mother's Day, you know, and raise their children completely isolated from any other relationships that can help them survive that experience. Like, it doesn't say that. And most people have never done that uh, in human history. But in the technological age, because Mammon wants mobile units of labor, uh, we do that. It's not good for us. So we need to begin rebuilding uh, households. And we especially need it because many people don't form families for all kinds of reasons. And many families break, they rupture in ways that, that need to be attended to. So the church should be thinking much more about, you know, what in the book I, I kind of call social architecture. Like how do we rebuild almost literally the physical dwellings that we're in ultimately? Um, it'll take decades if we're going to do this seriously, but to include more people under the roof of our lives. <laughs> um, and I, I worry that this chapter is going to be neglected because the people sort of think, uh, understandably, the book is about technology and how we handle our devices. But the truth is the most important thing you could do like to have a healthier relationship with technology is have more persons proximate to your life uh, mm -hmm. that just make it worth it to get away from the screen. Um, and maybe that I'll talk about the other one more yeah. briefly, just it gets to the heart of the matter, which is ultimately we need to, to move from seeking a charmed life to a truly blessed life. And uh, charmed to me is this sort of magical idea, like it's a, to be charmed would be to have things just suddenly much easier and suddenly much more effective. <laughs> like my life would be easier and it would make more of a difference if I were charmed. And I have been charmed in some ways. I've, uh, you know, I was young for many years. Youth is a charm. It gives you, you know, I, I, I'm 54 now and I see people who are like 25. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have so much energy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, but charms fade. They, they don't last. They're not that real. Uh, and blessing is this totally different thing that is not about your life becoming easier it often involves your life becoming harder um, or passing through some kind of suffering at least. Um, but whereas charms have this kind of diminishing quality, blessing has this ever increasing quality and technology does not work that way. Like your, your iPhone will never be more exciting than the first day you buy it. And then it's going to like dwindle and eventually it's going to be in a drawer or in a landfill or God knows where. And, and you'll be like, well, that thing's done. But blessing has this quality that it, it goes in the opposite way. It often starts very small, but it just keeps compounding over time, even over many generations, even beyond the horizon of an individual life. And I just feel like 
we're, we're taught continually to look for the charm, but we should be like looking for the blessing instead. Yeah. Well, I got two other things I want to ask you about, um, but yeah. real quick, is there anything just top of mind as it pertains to the conversation that we've had that you want to make sure that we cover? Mm. Mm. No, <laughs> this is also, I mean, this is great questions. Uh, so uh, no, no, I'm happy to follow your lead. Okay. Uh, I, I would feel remiss if I didn't ask about someone who plays a very important role in the book and that's Gaius. Yes. And would you mind talking about Gaius and kind of how, how you came across him and kind of the impact that he has had on you? Right. Yes. Wow. Thanks for asking. Because yeah, so this book, I'm very worried about this book, Caleb, because it's complicated. Like I'm doing a bunch of different things. And one of the things I'm, I mean, it's all this stuff about technology. I, I will say I appreciate the complexity because it is a very oh. complex topic. And I love that. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you give all the different angles on it. And it's great. I love it. <laughs> that's super encouraging. Well, one of the things I'm trying to do is even as we're thinking about our modern world, 21st century world, I, I take us back uh, in the beginning, the middle and the end of the book to the first century into the home of a guy named Gaius. Uh, and it's a totally ordinary name, far more ordinary than Caleb, by the way. Uh, that's an awesome name. Uh, Gaius is more like John or something in the, in the Roman world. Like his name says nothing uh, in a way, but we do know that he has a house because we meet him in Romans 16, which is this very interesting chapter that is just full of a bunch of greetings. Uh, Paul has uh, finished his letter, the great theological letter to the Romans. But in the last chapter, all Paul does is greet all these friends that he believes are going to be in Rome when Phoebe, who's carrying the letter, arrives. And we only know about Gaius because of another person who matters a lot to me, and his name is Tertius. Tertius is the scribe who's written down the letter. And, and he interjects in these greetings and he says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then he says, and we think it's probably Tertius continuing to speak at this point, he says, Gaius is host to me and the whole church. And Erastus, the city treasurer, is here, and the brother Cortus is here as well. So there's there's four names there, uh, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, Cortus, and then we know Phoebe's there, and then we know Paul's there. So we've got six people. And what started to captivate my attention is um, how in the world were these six people in someone's home as guests? Because they are really different from each other. You've got you know, Gaius owns a, apparently a good sized house because a whole church can meet it. Erastus is like the CFO of the city of Corinth. But then you have these guys named Tertius and Quartus, who whose names literally mean number three and number four. Like that's the, like they, they weren't even given proper first names. They're just named, oh, you're number three, you're number four. And maybe they're brothers, right? Because three and four, I mean, maybe Quartus is like yeah. Tertius' younger brother. And then Phoebe, who's a woman is an honored guest at this table that normally only men would, you know, kind of sit at these tables um, and women would serve, but she's a philanthropist. She's a business person. She's going to carry the letter. She's like a full participant. And then of course, at least Paul, maybe one of the others is a Jew in a Gentile home. So it's this gathering of people that if any Roman walked by and looked in the window and saw who's there at the moment Tertius writes that they'd be, scandalized and mystified like what are, and these people call each other brother and sister what is going on and i came to see as i was trying to tell the story of what's happening in our time to personhood in a world of technology in in an empire of technology i came to see this story 
of, of six persons in Gaius's home um, as a story we needed to hear to give us hope that there is a way to live in the midst of an empire that is not very good for most people, <laughs> which is their empire and ours. There's a way to live that actually can have lasting effects uh, to the point that because Paul wrote down his name and because Phoebe carried the letter and because the letter was of such importance and because these greetings did get conveyed and maybe because of things that are lost to us, but a chain of kind of love that was set in motion, we come to our moment and we still, it turns out we still know his name, but I think even if we didn't know his name, because there's lots of early Christians, we don't know anything about them. And yet they were part of this revolutionary development in human history that changed the course of human history far more in the long run than Augustus Caesar did. Um, and maybe that's the one other thing I'd say about Gaius is, you know, he has such a generic name and everybody knew in, in his world who Caesar was and nobody probably outside of his clients and neighbors knew who Gaius was, but who has the, the bigger part to play in the story? In some ways it's the, it's the Tertiuses, the people, you know, number three ends up mattering a great deal. Yeah. And how I love that you closed the book and, and you touched on it a little bit, but you talk about how the same thing could be possible today as well. Yes. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? Yeah. I think what is so encouraging to me, I mean, there's one way of looking at our world and it, that really should produce a, a kind of, I won't say despair because that's not for me an option as a Christian, but lament, an, an intense lament of what's being lost. But what is encouraging to me is there is a way to live right now, today, with all of the mammon-driven mess around us <laughs> that is redemptive that that could have generations and generations of of effect i won't say impact because impact is quick and this won't be quick but it ultimately participates in something god says um as he lays out the commandments he says you know i am uh, a jealous god who who cares for those who keep covenant with me and those who break my commandments it has three to four generations of impact the, the sins are visited on their children's children but to those who love me and keep my commandments, uh, I visit blessing for a thousand generations. And we, I suppose we tend to read that as like metaphor, but then you think about the fact, okay, it, it's a hundred generations back to the time of Jesus from Jesus to Abraham is about a hundred. So we've got 200 generations so far where God has kept that promise. Like that blessing has continued to be poured out continuously in the sense that it's never completely broken down and gone away through all the ups and downs of history and maybe we have 800 to go like we've got 200 so far but we have 800 to go and maybe we're part of that maybe we could live today in a way that would actually be part of that i i think that's what we should be aiming for yeah well andy i know that people are going to want to you know keep up with you and get the book the life we're longing for where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things <laughs> well uh I mean, go to your local bookseller, look them in the eye, <laughs> yeah. say, hello, what's your name? Yeah. Rather than going to the vast Amazon. So any bookshop can get you uh, the life we're looking for. Um, if they want to find me mediated technologically, there's a website, andycrouch.com with a dash, andy-crouch.com. And that does also have links to buy the book. So yeah, that's the way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work. 
Thank you so much, Kaylin. Such a pleasure. So there's there's so much to take away from that conversation. Here's just uh, a few of the things that have got me thinking and even some of the things that I'm working on throughout that. I think one is, you know, just um, the idea that he that he talks about um, and, I, and, you know, he gets into this a lot more in the book, but um, moving from individuals to households and just re-engaging that sense of community. And um, if you've been listening for the, uh, to the Learner's Corner for a while, that's just something that I've been thinking about as well, of how to create this sense of community and, um, and to move out of the shallowness of relationships and move more into uh, deeper and more life-giving and fulfilling relationships. And... Um, and realizing that it's not always about um, the life-giving piece of it, but that even that mutuality of it, that yes, sometimes you are going to give life, uh, or sometimes people are going to give you life, and sometimes um, you're going to give life to people. And really just thinking about that, I think another one is, um, you know, his practice of walking outside, and that being the first thing that, that he does. I am working on that. Uh, some mornings are better than other mornings, but even just that idea of just engaging with nature more and trying to um, trying to do that. That's one of the things that uh, really challenged me um, from the book and even from our conversation. And I think going all the way back to you know the beginning of our conversation of just understanding history, and history is just something that I've become um, so fascinated about and just realizing the effect that it has on us. And just what he said about how history allows us um, to get outside of the moment, to get outside of the present, to learn from people who have gone before us and, and take many things away from them and allowing that to form to inform the promises that we make in our future, whether that be um, collectively or individually. And yeah, that's just some of the things that I'm thinking about uh, from this conversation. And I would love to hear from you as well on some of the things that this conversation made you think about or things that you would love us to cover on the podcast. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com and would love to hear from you about that as well. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Andy for coming on the podcast as well. And hopefully we can uh, make a a round two or a part two happen at, at some point. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. That's all that I have for you today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.